Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. My name is Patrick O'Reilly, Chair of the Psychology Forum, and I'm delighted to introduce tonight's speaker, Ms. Carrie Sager. Ms. Sager is Senior Homelessness Program Coordinator for Marin County Health and Human Services, where she works with local nonprofits and city and county governments to create a coordinated system of care to house the most vulnerable people experiencing homelessness in our community. Prior to working there, she worked with HomeBase, a San Francisco-based nonprofit law firm that works with cities and counties to implement responses to homelessness. Please welcome Carrie Sager. All right, thank you, Patrick. Um, and thank you, everybody, for coming today. Um, so as a homelessness program coordinator, a title that I'm sure is extremely clear what I do, um, I really work on the policy level. Um, I don't do direct client work. Um, and so in the course of my work, um, I've looked a lot into the research about what kind of homelessness programs are most effective, because those are the ones we want to be spending money on. And um, I've worked, you know, gone out into the community and talked to a lot of community members about, you know, why we're doing what we're doing in Marin. Um, And I've come across in that process um, a lot of sort of common misunderstandings about homelessness. Um, And so that that is what I'm addressing today. Um, I'm sure there's stuff I'm not covering. Um, Just a sort of a, a caveat ahead of time. I don't know a ton about what's happening in other communities in the Bay Area. Um, you know, if you read the Chronicle regularly, you know as much as I do. Um, I know a lot about what's happening in Marin for obvious reasons, but if you've got like a really specific question about like this one navigation center and what they're doing and is that right, that I'm not going to be able to tell you. Um, okay, so I'll jump right in. So top myths about homelessness. Number one, some people just want to be homeless. Um, and I'm sure there's some people who are like, okay, there are definitely at least some people who want to be homeless. And like, yes, there are, you know, hashtag van life. Like there <laughs> technically are people who are like, cool, this is my life. I'm free. I love it. But usually when people say some people don't want to be homeless, what they're talking about is, oh, this person, they offered, they got offered services. They said, no, they want to be homeless. Why should we even try and help them? ship them off somewhere else. Um, And the truth is, there are a lot of reasons why people would reject housing or shelter. Um, One thing is safety, Uh, especially if you look at like a congregate shelter. um, You've got a ton of people packed in together. You've got people with substance use issues. You've got people with mental health issues. Um, Not saying those people are, you know, necessarily dangerous, but, you know, you get people who act out in various ways. Um, Even in actual housing, you know, if it's in a neighborhood that somebody sees as unsafe, um, if they have a roommate who, you know, maybe that roommate's got some behavioral health issues, um, they might, you know, think like, okay, well, this is, you know, if I'm, I know how to be safe out on the street, right? I know where I can sleep that's safe. I've got my card, like I've got my dog, you know, I've I've got it all figured out. I'm not going to give those things up for this, this thing that may not be safe. Um... Crowding, not wanting roommates again. Shelter is sort of the obvious thing where you've got a ton of people in like one space. But even in housing, um, if you've got shared housing, especially in a place like the Bay Area where housing is really expensive, um, shared housing can be a really good way to house people. But some people don't want that. Um, If you're not able to bring your pet... Uh, I'm sure a lot of us have pets. Um, if we moved, you know, if somebody said like, oh, you know, there's this really great apartment I found, you want to move in, uh, sorry, they don't allow cats, they don't allow your dog. Like, if this animal is your primary source of comfort and safety and companionship, you know, you're not going to leave that, that behind. If somebody's had a previous bad experience with a provider um, or with housing in general, you know, oh yeah, like Agency A, like I used to, I went into their shelter once and they made me leave. They said, you know, I was being too loud. Like, why would I go back in there? Why would I accept housing from them? They're just going to kick me out again. Um, if the housing's in the wrong area or they don't like the available housing, um, you know, I'm in a lot of places, parts of the Bay Area, our housing is, um, our housing for people experiencing homelessness is really concentrated in 
not the nicest neighborhoods. Um, if somebody is, you know, they're living somewhere else, they don't really know that neighborhood, they don't like that neighborhood, they had a bad experience in that neighborhood. Um, a lot of women experiencing homelessness have suffered, um, have experienced domestic violence. Um, you know, the, that guy I was dating, he's in that neighborhood, I can't go back there. Um, or, you know, hey, I just don't want to move into that really terrible SRO. Like, the rooms are dirty, you have to share a bathroom, it's gross, I don't want to live there. Um, or by people who see accepting help as weakness. This is the, um, that housing is for crazy people and I'm not a crazy person uh, reason. And you might think, like, okay, well, those are all, like, those are reasons I wouldn't change an apartment, but I, like, I have housing, so why would I not... Like, if I was on the street, those seem like sort of minor things to get over to not be on the street. Um, and part of that is just the experience of homelessness and how it really changes the way you sort of experience the world. So if you've got people who are difficult to serve for whatever reason, um, substance use issues, mental health issues, um, Difficult to serve is not the, quite the right term, um, but people who have high service needs, um, who aren't successful in a program, um, in shelter and housing, they lose that shelter or housing. That makes them distrust the system. You know, I don't want to work with these providers anymore. Um, and then they don't seek help because why would you seek help from these providers you don't trust? Why would you trust them with something as, you know, personal and difficult as? a behavioral health issue um, or, you know, PTSD or any of these, these issues that you're dealing with. Um, and then your problems get worse because you're not getting any help for them. So it's, there are a lot of reasons people wouldn't accept help when it's available. Um, okay, so number two, well, if people want to be housed, then they're probably super happy once they get housed, right? Like, that's great. You were homeless, now you're housed, and that's what you wanted, and now everything's great. This is one of the really weird things about homelessness that's really sort of hard to wrap your head around, and that is that the first three to six months that somebody goes from homelessness to housing are actually way worse for a lot of people than being out on the street. Um, so I, I do what's called, what I call government slides, which are when you're going to do um, a talk or a webinar or something, and you know you have to send the slides out afterwards, so there's more text than you're supposed to have on slides. So please try not to read everything. Um, I'll summarize the important stuff. Um, so there's a study of people who are placed in supportive housing in Toronto. Um, and what they found is in the first six months, the outcomes were terrible. So 40% of people had decreased community integration. 30% um, had increased mental health severity, so their mental health problems got worse. 28% had increased substance use problems. They were drinking more, doing more drugs. Um, and what had happened is that clients all became socially isolated. So if you're out in the community and you're experiencing homelessness, you've got your friends, you know, you know, oh yeah, it's, you know, in the morning I'm going to go to the park and like hang out with these guys and then I'm going to go get lunch at the kitchen and like my friend so-and-so is there. And once you're sort of moved into housing, that's all taken away from you. You know, you're told like, oh, you can't, you know, you can't invite a bunch of people over to your apartment because then your landlord's going to get mad at you because, you know, you're going to have all these people over having big parties. You're going to lose your housing. So, like, don't, you know, you can hang out with your friends outside, but don't bring them back to your apartment. Um, and you're going through this incredible trans transition where all the stuff, all the ways that you've lived for the past however many years um, are wrong now. So, like... You know, if, I, if I'm experiencing homelessness in San Rafael, in Marin, then I know, like, I go to St. Vincent's to get breakfast and lunch. And, like, that's my strategy. But then, like, suddenly now I'm housed. I'm housed up in Novato. I have to go grocery shopping. I have to cook. I have to, um, you know, buy, buy toilet paper. Like, all these things that I haven't done possibly in, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, some people 
basically their entire adult lives, they've experienced homelessness. They've never had to do this. Like that's a huge transition to learn all those skills also while you're experiencing the social isolation. Um, and this is sort of another part of that, the transformation of your life that happens when you're experiencing homelessness. So when you, when somebody becomes homeless, um, they enter, is this a laser pointer? No. You enter um, what we call survival mode, which is basically your whole day, every day, is how do I f- attend to my basic needs? How do I get food? How do I find a safe place to sleep? Um, how do I, you know, deal with whatever immediate problem I'm having? You know, I've injured myself. Like, is there something I can do about that? Like, can I find a way to get that, that problem resolved? Um, and the longer you're homeless, the more you basically get better at being homeless. You learn where to go for food, what the schedule is, what, um, where the free clinics are, where all the different, you know, what are the good places to sleep, where it's a good place you can park your car, where the police aren't going to tell you to move your car. Um, you make friends with other people who are experiencing homelessness. You, you adapt to the whole situation and what's become what's really an abnormal situation becomes normal to you. And so when that entire process is disrupted, it's just totally overwhelming. Um, so people, like, moving into housing is actually really, really difficult. Um, and for people who do the case management, um, having that really intensive case management right at move-in is really important. Number three, these people aren't from here. They just come for the services. Um, and I don't, I don't blame people for thinking this because this is a message you get everywhere. Even our elected officials, um, Diane Feinstein, uh, just uh, five days ago said a lot of people come to the state who are homeless, and that's part of the problem. Um, Gavin Newsom earlier this year um, said that the majority of people experiencing homelessness in San Francisco were coming from other states. Um, But actually, if you look at the data, so every two years, one to two years, depending on the county, counties do what's called a point-in-time count. Um, And the point-in-time count, it's an enumeration of everybody experiencing homelessness on a single night. It's definitely an undercount, like there are, you're never capturing everybody in this count. But what you're doing is you are getting a count and then you go out and you do surveys. And you do enough surveys that you can have like a statistically valid ability to say, you know, this is, this, these are the characteristics of the people experiencing homelessness in our community. Um, the assessments are done by people experiencing homelessness or people who recently have experienced homelessness. So there's no like, oh, this is a case manager asking me, I got to like give a really good answer so that I can get services. You know, it's, this is, um, this is, this is, these are, these are generally found to be pretty honest answers. And our, what I've heard from providers is that it really reflects their understanding of the population as well. Um, and what we find is that across the entire country, 65 to 80% of people experiencing homelessness were housed in that community before becoming homeless. Um, so in Marin County, 73% of people who are homeless in Marin County were living in Marin County when they lost their housing. San Francisco at 70%, Alameda County is 78%, Santa Clara County is 81%. Um, down in LA, 65%, it's one of the lowest, um, once you leave California, um, in Nevada, Las Vegas, the county with Las Vegas in it, um, 69%. Up in Seattle, it's 84%. And then, you know, across the country, um, in Essex County, where Newark is, it's 80%. Um, actually, I talked to a guy, I was at a conference once, and I was talking to a guy from the West Virginia Balance of State Continuum of Care. Um, and so what that means is, all the parts of West Virginia that aren't a big city. So this is like the small, the most small town, impoverished, coal mining country. And what he told us is that, that what people there are like, we, sh- we got to stop providing so many services for the homeless because people are coming here for the services. So even there, there's still this, this feeling. Um, and he said the same thing, that 80%, about 80% of the people there were experiencing homelessness, um, 
there before, or were, were housed there before they became homeless. Um, and even when you look at the, you know, 70, 80% numbers, that's just the county itself. Um, if you look at sort of the broader numbers, most people who were housed, um, who are not from that county, are from the same state. So like, you know, New Jersey, 80% of the people were um, from that county that Newark is in. Uh, 95% were from the state of New Jersey. Um, in San Francisco, only 3% of people reported being from out of state in the 2019 point in time count. Everybody else was from somewhere else in California. So this idea that, you know, everybody's coming here for our great services or our great weather is really not borne out by the data. Um, okay, the follow-up. We start housing people, they're going to come here, right? Like, here, like, oh, well, I'm, maybe I'm in Nevada and I'm not getting housed, but I hear, like, you come to San Francisco, you can get housing, so I'm going to come to San Francisco. Um, and the way we can show that this isn't true is by looking at the counties that are in fact housing people. So Bergen County, New Jersey, um, it's right across the river from a little small town called New York City. Um, New York City has the largest homeless population in the United States. There are 60,000 people experiencing homelessness in New York City. Um, in Bergen County, New Jersey, they have ended chronic homelessness. So that chronic homelessness being people who are homeless for more than a year, basically, and have a, a disability that makes it difficult for them to remain housed independently. Um, and so they, you know, they invested resources and, you know, these numbers went down and they haven't gone back up. And so if people aren't going to cross a bridge from New York City, where there are 60,000 people experiencing homelessness, to Bergen County to get housed then I don't think they're going to fly across the country to do it. Um, and now you might be looking at this and being like, those numbers are kind of small. Like, maybe, you know, it's easy to end homelessness when you've only got 35 chronically homeless people. Um, and so then I'd go to Montgomery County, Maryland, which is, again, right next to Washington, D.C., um, another small town. Uh, D.C.'s got about 10,000 people experiencing homelessness, so a little bit, little bit bigger than San Francisco. Um, I think, um, or maybe similar. Um, and Montgomery County has cut their chronic homelessness population in half in one year. So between um, November 2016 and September 2017, they went from about 250 people who were chronically homeless um, down to 100. And they did that just by investing a lot of money and really focusing on getting people housed. Um, countrywide, um, three states and 54 communities have ended uh, veteran homelessness. So veteran homelessness is, that's, that's, the, that's the one we all really should be able to end. There are a lot more resources that are veteran-specific because um, the government rightfully realizes that the reason a lot of veterans are homeless is because they're veterans, um, because of, you know, PTSD and other sort of effects of having served in the military. And given that they, you know, that is the result of the U.S. government, that maybe the U.S. government should have some responsibility for solving that problem. So, um, so there are more resources available for veterans, um, San Francisco, even though the homelessness population went up this year, uh, the veteran homelessness number went down. So those resources are, are available. And, um, but, you know, of the three states and 54 communities that have ended veteran homelessness, we haven't seen all the veterans going, you know, hey, I'm going to leave San Francisco and move down to Riverside because that's where they've ended veteran homelessness and I can get housed. Um, you know, part of this is... If you're living in a place, you know that's where everything you know is. That's where your friends are. That's where your, your connections before you became homeless are. Um, you don't have a ton of resources. If you did, you wouldn't be homeless. So picking up and moving across the country is not really something that's, that you can do for most folks. All right, number five. Fine. You can't just put a junkie in a house. 
Um, that is a real quote from somebody. That is not my phrasing. Um, but I think that's the way a lot of people feel. You know, how do we, how do we house somebody who's got all these problems I keep talking about, who's got substance use issues and mental health issues and, um, you know, uh, the whole sort of spectrum, you know, they're unemployed and they've, they've got all these different issues. Um, and the answer is, which some of you have probably heard of, housing first. So in a traditional homeless system of care, you have to go through a bunch of different steps. So you go from homelessness, you go into emergency shelter, you get to stay in the emergency shelter for a while. Um, if you do well in emergency shelter, you get to go in transitional housing and transitional housing. They teach you how to be housed and they teach you how to, you know, how to cook and buy groceries and you're living in this nice controlled space. And, um, and then if you do really well in um, transitional housing, then you get to move into permanent housing. And what Housing First says is hey, there's a bunch of places you can fall out of that system, right? Like you're in emergency shelter. Um, first, you have to get into emergency shelter. You have to be willing to do that. If you've got, you know, say you've got a dog, a lot, very few shelters are equipped to deal with pets. So like back in that first slide, you don't want to go into those because you've got the dog. You don't want to stay there because it's... Um, you know, it's this congregate living situation, it's too loud, it's, it's not, you don't feel safe. Um, so you've got a bunch of people who don't even make it to the shelter placement step. Um, once you're in shelter, you know, maybe you break one of the shelter's rules. Um, a lot of shelters, shelters are, I think there's a movement towards being lower barrier, um, but there are still a lot of shelters that have rules. Um, so you break a shelter rule, you get kicked out of shelter, you're back to homelessness. Um, and so Housing First says, let's just skip all that stuff. Let's just go from homelessness straight into permanent housing. Um, if you've, you've got this support the whole time, so we're not just saying, like, here's a house, have fun, because especially when you're talking about somebody who's got, you know, physical health, mental health, um, substance use issues, um, all that difficulty we talked about in the beginning about that transition into being housed from being homeless, um, you don't just want to just sort of put somebody in a house, but that's why you've got case management and you've got flexible case management that scales to what the person needs. So some people are actually going to have a relatively easy adjustment. Um, and those people, you know, maybe the case manager helps them sort of settle in, checks in with them once a week and then once a month, um, works great. Other people are going to have a really tough time, um, and, you know, their case managers may be coming and seeing them three times a day, four times a day. Um, we've, you know, I've known of situations where uh, case managers basically come and been like, we're just, we're going to stay with you for a little while, like not, not moving in. That's not having good boundaries as a case manager. But, you know, I'm going to come and like sit with you all day and we're going to sort of figure out what's going on with you and you know, how you can sort of move through your day and work through this. And so it's all tailored to what a person needs, um, which is something that's actually really hard when you're looking at something like transitional housing, where there is, it's programs. So you're in transitional housing and, you know, Tuesdays are cooking class and Wednesdays are group therapy. And so somebody who's like, well, I know how to cook. Like I was, I was housed for 20 years. And when I was housed, I was a professional chef. Like I don't need a cooking class. Um, you're sort of putting those resources into those services that the person doesn't need. So what's the proof that housing first works? Here, again, don't read the slides. <laughs> Very dense. Um, so one study took 225 people um, who were randomly assigned to either get sort of traditional um, housing with treatment and, like, you had to be sober, um, and then another group just got straight housing. You didn't have to go through any sort of treatment program. Um, and the, the group that just did housing first, they got housing earlier. They remained stably housed. Um, they had a you know perception that they had more choice. Um, having that, you know, homeless people um, are human beings. Um, and so having autonomy and having choice and feeling like you have control of your life is important. Um, and so the housing first really gave people that. Um, they didn't use uh, 
substance abuse treatment as much as the group that was required to use substance use treatment, but that didn't actually have a difference in their overall substance use in the end. So the people who were going to use substances were going to use substances. Um, the substance use treatment didn't actually have a huge effect. Um, and the same with the psychiatric symptoms. Um, another study um, found that if you did a housing first um, in, in rental market accommodation, so just like we call this scattered site, you're just out in um, apartments in the community as opposed to like a housing project, um, with an assertive community treatment team, which is a very specific mental health case management model, um, had they increased antipsychotic adherence um, to recommended levels um, for people who are homeless and diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, City of Toronto did a study. They found um, of people who were housed in the Housing First program, 49% showed a decrease in alcohol use, including 17% who totally abstained. Um, 74% decrease in drug use, with 33% um, quitting altogether. Uh, 28% decrease in health clinic use, 40% decrease in ER use, 25% decrease in hospital use, um, 38% decrease in ambulance use. So if for the people who were, who were not convinced by anything else that the financial argument for housing first, like that's a huge, um, huge saving of resources, um, the, that much decrease in the public services. Um, locally in San Mateo, um, there's a project called the Vendome where they, they housed basically the sort of most visible people who were experiencing homelessness in downtown San Mateo. And they found among those people who they housed, there was a 99% reduction in police contacts and an 85% drop in medical costs. So huge impact from housing people. Um, number six, the super convincing, right? You're all convinced you heard about this, like, in Utah, they're doing something that you think sounds really good. Let's do that. And this is my personal, my, pers my little personal pet peeve, which I don't know how Utah, like, just got the best PR firm or what. Um, like, because you got all these headlines, you know, the surprisingly simple way Utah solved chronic homelessness and saved millions. Utah found a brilliantly effective solution for homelessness. Uh, the shocking, surprisingly simple, cost-effective way to end homelessness. It's just housing first. They just did housing first, which we're all doing. Somehow, they're not, their numbers aren't a huge amount better than anybody else's. It's just they really just caught that wave, and they just are, Utah's just doing housing first. So is San Francisco. So is Alameda County. So is Santa Clara. So is San Mateo. We're all doing it. Um, so, um, one thing Utah did actually that I will give them props for, um, is that they, they did this in a very bipartisan way, um, which is something that not every, I'm, I'm not going to get political here, but, um, not every community has been able to get bipartisan support for spending money on homeless services. Um, and Utah did that. It was actually a Republican led, um, campaign to do this real housing first push. Um, and it, again, it was because of that. Well, it's probably partially because they're Mormons and there's a lot of sort of taking care of the community, but also it's that financial argument, right? Like you're saving so much money when you don't have somebody like just calling 911 all the time or getting 911 called on them because they're sleeping in the park and somebody's like, I don't know if that guy's okay. I'm going to call 911, getting like a wellness check, um, not using the hospitals all the time, um, actually getting like preventative health care, being able to, you know, get all their, their issues addressed, which is all way easier when you're in housing. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Number seven, we can't solve homelessness because there's not enough housing. So I am not, again, I'm not going to say like, there's no housing crisis. We've got plenty of housing, guys. Because um, I'm sure some of you are renters and are like, there is a housing problem. 
Um, there's definitely a housing crisis in California. But again, like the, you know, some people just don't want housing. I think this is used as an excuse. Like, there's not enough housing. What are we going to do? What's even the point of funding this when we can't, we can't afford to build it? We can't, you know, nobody will let us build it. It's, you know, it's hopeless. Um, and the truth is there are creative housing solutions to use the housing stock we have to reduce homelessness while more housing gets built, while we address sort of the other housing issues. So um, increasing rent payments, um, federal housing subsidies are all based on something called the fair market rent, which is um, basically they look at the, look at how much units are renting for and say, this is how much you can spend. The actual amount for a lot of communities is nowhere near what actual rent costs. But uh, a housing authority can basically do a study and go to HUD, uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and say, hey, this is ridiculous. You're telling us that we're supposed to be renting an apartment, a studio apartment in Marin County. Um, and Marin rents are pretty much the same as San Francisco rents, um, to give people a frame of reference. You're telling us we can rent a studio apartment in Marin County for $1,200 a month. We can't. What are we, how are we supposed to use any of these vouchers in anything but like the most like slummy apartments available? Um, here's, here's the actual rent. You know, here is, here is 300 rental listings and the rent that was posted on each. This is how much money we actually need uh, to do these rents. And so um, Marin did a study like this. Um, I think it's actually Marin and San Francisco do have a joint housing authority. Um, so they did a, not a joint housing authority, but the joint uh, fair market rent. So the two housing authorities did a study together. Um, and then Alameda and Contra Costa County also did the same thing um, and basically got our fair market rents boosted dramatically. And so now we actually can go out on the market and be competitive um, and say like, okay, you still have, you still have all this stuff about, you know, getting a landlord to accept a voucher, but at least it's not like, will you accept this voucher and also $600 a month less than you could get on the market? Um, which leads into the next thing. How do you get the landlords to accept the vouchers? Um, you basically, you bribe them. <laughs> um, so you say, you know, hey, we'll, you know, we'll give you this extra, you know, an extra thousand dollars for it renting an apartment to this person. Um, we have created this pool, this, this risk management pool, so that if you're nervous about renting to somebody who's been homeless, well, you know, if they do damage your apartment, we have this pool and we can pay for repairs above what the, um, you know, what the deposit amount is. Um, if you, uh, what else do we have? Um, landlord uh, call line. So if there's a 20, in Marin, we've got a 24-hour line where, you know, hey, I'm getting, I'm a landlord. I'm getting calls from other tenants that this person is being disruptive. Um, then that can be conveyed to a case manager. The case manager can go out, work on the problem with the person. Um, that's, I mean, I think most landlords who have a lot of units are like, well, that's, I have plenty of disruptive tenants who aren't on vouchers. I wish I could get somebody to go out and talk to them. Um, and that leads into another thing, which is having um, dedicated housing and location services. Um, in Marin, we have um, a woman who comes from a uh, property management background. And so what she does is she can go to the landlords and say, here's the business case for accepting these vouchers, which includes things like, here's our landlord incentive program. Here is, you know, you have guaranteed payment um, every month. If your client is disruptive, then they've got a case manager who will come out and talk to them. Um, because what we found is that if you ask it, first of all, it's silly to ask a case manager to, you know, try and be a real estate agent. Like we wouldn't ask a real estate agent to be a case manager. Like they're two separate skill sets. Um, so we should get somebody with the skills that we need to do the job that we need them to do. Um, and what we found is that if the result of that is that if you have a case manager and have them go out and try and like recruit landlords, then it becomes... You can, you can house a veteran. You can make a difference in someone's life. And there are some landlords who are like, 
yeah, I'd like that. That'd be great. And those are the people who we were already renting to. And what we needed was new landlords who were like, I don't care about that. I want to know, am I going to make as much money if I rent from you or if I rent to you as if I rent to somebody else? Um, roommate situations. It's not for everybody. Um, but, you know, I think many of us have probably at times in our lives when we were earning less money have lived with roommates. Um, it's, you know, it's an option. Um, there actually, there's a, a program in Sacramento County that does, um, they rent entire houses, like five bedroom houses, and they put really, really high needs, seriously mentally ill people in these, um, in these houses. And they have worked out a system where it actually is working out great. Like it's, you know, it's like sort of this combination of like roommate matching and like the right case management and the houses are pretty nice. You know, you're generally getting like, a, if you're living in a house, it's usually a little nicer than living in an apartment. Um, you have to sort of tweak some stuff to, to get it to work really well. Um, you know, a, a lot of the time with shared housing, um, sort of resource protection is really uh, important. So like, you know, maybe everybody gets, you maybe instead of having one refrigerator, you have like four mini fridges and everybody just has their own locked mini fridge. And, you know, that's just sort of creative problem solving. Um, and then obviously new construction. That's the, if you don't have housing, you just make some housing, um, which obviously, I mean, again, I work in Marin. Marin is not big on new construction of any kind. So, but if you can make it work, um, it works great. All right, number eight. What about tiny homes? Uh, those sound like a great way to house people. Um, and so I'm going to say number one. First, we have to talk about what is a tiny home because people have a lot of different ideas. Are we talking about like a super cute, like dwell magazine, like super nice, and it's got, you've got your little papasan chair on the porch, and it's really nice? Or are we talking about like a, a tent, but it's made of wood? Um, and so I'm really only going to talk about a cute little nice dwell magazine tiny home. Um, when I when we talk about housing first, we really need to talk about actual housing. Um, my sort of standard for like my minimum standard for housing is you don't have to go outside to go to the bathroom. Um, if you have to, you know, if you've got like a bunch of little tough sheds and you have to go outside to like some centralized bath facility, if it's raining really hard, if it's really cold and miserable, that's not housing. Um, is it better than living in a tent? Maybe. Depends. Depends on the, the thing, you know, the, how this how it's set up. Um, you can have locks, you know, that helps with, with feeling of safety. Um, but we don't, we also wouldn't subsidize tents, right? Like if we've got a limited number of resources, we've already talked about how housing is what ends homelessness. So let's focus on actual housing and not on temporary solutions. Um, and certainly not focus on expensive temporary solutions um, that have, you know, some health code issues, um, like a little, um, you know, box, box on wheels. Um, so the answer, you know, what about tiny homes is it really depends. So I have nothing against tiny homes conceptually, but if you're talking about in a place like the Bay Area where land is at a premium, you can compare some sort of, there's a tiny home community in Austin, Texas. You got 120 tiny homes, 100 RVs, um, 20 canvas-sided homes. I think those are like the really nice tent. Maybe they're yurts. I'm not sure. Um, so you've got this, this big housing development, um, you know, 200, about 250 units, and that takes 27 acres. Um, if anybody knows where we can find 27 acres in the Bay Area to build a tiny home community on, please let me know. Um, look, at, you get a little denser um, up in Santa Rosa, California. There's a 
building called The Palms. It's a converted single-story hotel. Um, that's got 104 units on 6.26 acres. Um, and there's room. They want to build some more stuff there. Um, the Palms is really great, actually. If anybody knows, if anybody's selling a hotel, um, please contact your local homeless service providers. Somebody's going to want to buy it. Uh, hotel conversions are fantastic. Um, but then you look for, you know, something like San Francisco, um, the Mercy Housing Mission Creek development. This is a six-story building, 140 units of senior housing, and that's on less than one acre. So when you're talking about you've got this really limited space, um, like we do in the Bay Area, really tiny homes are not going to be the best use of that limited space. Um, and with the... Um, sort of the exception of infill. So tiny homes is infill. This is your, your backyard tiny home um, in you know, a residential neighborhood. That's generally, I'm totally in favor of that. I think that's great. Um, but I think that's generally, that's not going to be your solution for your super high needs, chronically homeless folks, um, just because most people don't want like a meth addict in their backyard. Right? So... Um, what about micro apartments? We hear a lot about modular building and micro apartments and, you know, how about these? Um, and again, the answer is it depends. So you have to make sure that whatever you're building, um, it conforms to sort of best practices and safety and habitability standards. So like if you if you have, um, which again, most of these like prefab ones are going to do, nobody's going to design something that doesn't, meet building codes but like are your doors wide enough like the building standards are were created for a reason um if you've got stairs that are too steep if you've got doors that are too narrow um you're sort of putting people's health at risk to like save a little space and save a little money and that's generally not great um also be aware that like tiny homes tiny homes are very cute but they're a little bit inconvenient in a lot of ways. Like if you've got a Murphy bed, you know, that's the one you put up, pull down. Um, every morning you've got to like make your bed and you've got to put it up or else you're, you know, walking around it and you do all these extra steps. And um, if you've got a bunch of, you know, you've got your stuff, you always have to put your stuff away or else it like, you can't actually get around your tiny apartment. Um, and for some people, this isn't going to be a problem. Um, but for some people like that's, again, we just talked, we talked about like, all of these sort of extra stresses of being in housing that you're not used to, we've just added a couple more. And they seem like really tiny ones, but when you're adding them on to all of, you know, also learning to cook and learning to buy your own toilet paper and like all of these other things, you know, you have to just sort of be aware that you are creating some additional stresses. Um, having trauma-informed design um, is really important. Um, basically if you're going to make micro apartments, make them nice. Um, and so there was a, there was a study that found, um, that when you put clients in like this really old sort of gross, um, single room occupancy unit where, you know, they had shared bathrooms, there were like, there were needles in the bathroom. Like this was a terrible, terrible building, um, only 30% of people stayed in that housing. Like, that's a terrible housing retention rate. Um, federal funding, you basically, um, HUD's going to look at you funny if you're not, if you don't have about 80% housing retention. Um, and then a, a new clean private bathroom SRO had a 70% housing retention rate with similar case management. So, like, having a unit that's, that's nice um, is actually makes a huge difference. And now on to questions. The, the two questions I had was one thing that is a perception of mine that maybe is completely false and another myth that I missed at the beginning um, is that San Francisco is spending a lot more per capita than a lot of these other communities. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm interested to know maybe what the source of that is. Um, I could see that part of it is the fair market rent thing, but mm -hmm. intuitively it doesn't seem like that would explain the entire discrepancy if that discrepancy is like real. Um, and then the other question 
just that I like don't intuitively know the answer to, um, is how in a housing first situation, you transition people out of, um, of housing. Okay. So I'm going to answer, I'm going to answer your second question. The thing you missed at the beginning was me saying, I don't really know a lot about what's happening in communities other than Marin. (laughs) So I don't want to speak for San Francisco. Um, I do know San Francisco is spending a lot of money, um, but I couldn't tell you where it's going or whether it's being well spent. So, um, but in terms of transitioning people out of housing first, it varies a lot on the person. So, um, there are a couple different kinds of housing for people experiencing homelessness. Um, all of them can be housing first. Housing first is just sort of a philosophy rather than a program. Um, so if you're talking about something called rapid rehousing, this is your sort of short to medium term rental subsidies. Um, this is, you know, somebody who, who lost their housing, but they have a job. Um, they maybe need a better job or they, you know, they, they're capable of, of working and earning income and living without sort of permanent assistance, um, that sort of, by its very nature, people will move on from it. Um, for something called permanent supportive housing, this is for your really sort of high needs folks. Um, and for that, you know, people, people vary in whether or not they will be able to move on from it. Um, I think especially if you look at folks who have, um, really long histories of homelessness, um, some of the damage that has happened in that time is not really something you can case manage away. Um, people with traumatic brain injuries, um, people with, um, you know, if you use drugs and alcohol for 20 years heavily every day, you basically have turned your brain into Swiss cheese. So like just things like, um, you know, decision-making and, um, memory problems. Um, so some people aren't actually going to be able to move on, um, from permanent supportive housing, but it is again, both cheaper and more humane to keep them in permanent supportive housing than to have them out on the streets. Um, for other folks, you know, once they sort of have stabilized, um, they can actually get to a point where like they're working. Um, and then it's just really for anybody who's in permanent supportive housing, you want to introduce, um, activities like um whether that's volunteering or employment um because people need to do something meaningful with their lives um just like that's a human need we all have um and so if people are capable of working a lot of the time you'll find that they really do want to work um because first of all you get money everybody likes that um but also you know it's yeah, you feel you feel like you're you're contributing to the world, um, and when you're housed, it's much easier to get work. I mean, getting getting a job when you're experiencing homelessness is so difficult because you're you don't have a place to sleep, you don't have a place to like shower and get ready for the day. So it um, so that was a, sort of a convoluted answer. But no, no, no. That, thank you. Okay, thanks. Uh, some cities, such as New York and Boston, have right to shelter laws. Mm-hmm. And in these cities, only about 5% or less of people are, of homeless are actually unsheltered. And I think this is uh, such a law has been considered in the Senate, the legislature Senate mm-hmm. in California. Uh, do you have an opinion on the wisdom of this? I do. Um, so this is something that normally I like to get somebody who does work in direct services to say, because it sounds really heartless coming from me as like an ivory tower government bureaucrat. Um, and that is that. In California, people don't die from exposure. People die from being homeless for 20 years. Like the the cause of death for people out on the streets um, is, you know, these chronic health conditions that occur from being unhoused for a long time um, are so much more dangerous than being out on the street in the rain. Um, And... I understand the impulse behind right to shelter laws because it is it is a kind and humanitarian impulse. Like seeing people out on the street in the winter sucks. Like nobody like it's it's unpleasant. It does, you know, it's it can be dangerous. Like I don't want to say like nobody has ever died of exposure because that's not true. But on the broad sense, like, you know, as a heartless government bureaucrat, I need to say we have this many resources how do we 
channel them in a way that will save the most lives, and that is permanent housing. Um, the amount of resources it would take to provide shelter to everybody in California who's experiencing hom- homelessness is just immense, um, and there's no way it wouldn't draw away from other programs that are housing people. I just heard you say you can't speak for San Francisco, but I'm sure you, you've heard about this. wondered if you can comment at all on the, the navigation-centered problem with the Embarcadero at, at, at about the foot of uh, Harrison Street there and, and there where their neighbors are suing the city and so forth. Um, I, can, I can address it in sort of a broader sense of nimbyism, um, which is something, again, if I work in Marin. I have a great deal of experience with neighbors not wanting emergency shelters or housing. Um, and that is, um, it's a tough situation, you know? I think a lot of people's fears are overblown, um, but I th- also think that there are, you know, there are places where it does and does not make sense to create housing developments um, and um, to site emergency shelters. I think if you ask anybody, they will say, well, my neighborhood is not a good place to site an emergency shelter or a housing development. Um, and I, I, I can't speak to San Francisco and whether the, um, the Embarcadero place is a good, a good site. But I think it's, you know, it's something we really have to sort of address and overcome whenever we're trying to create new, um, new facilities. Hi, I'm from uh, Oakland. Mm-hmm. We want you San Franciscans to stop sending all your homeless to us. <laughs> Fresno wants Oakland to stop sending all its homeless to Fresno. So, so a, a couple of questions. You know, the, this notion of everybody should have a private apartment with their own bathroom and so forth. They kind of tried that in this place called Pruitt Igo. And I got to take, have you ever heard of it in St. Louis? Oh, it's a big housing, famous housing project at Fed financed in St. Louis that had to be torn down and blown up because all those nice apartments were just high rise and became mm-hmm. hotbeds of crime and so forth. So that's something that, so you can comment on that. And the other thing, I guess, is one of the things that goes on in Oakland, and you can look at Mosswood Park apart across from Kaiser is people don't want to commute out to Tracy. Are you kidding? It's two and a half hours one way. So people are setting up rather large, I've measured them, 600 square foot tent compounds complete with lounge chairs and barbecue pits. And it's, it's become a lifestyle for some people. So I, would you comment on that as well? Thank you. So I think the the it's become a lifestyle kind of gets to that first... Um, you know, people want to be homeless. Um, I think, yeah, well, they, they, I mean, that ties into the housing. Like, there is not enough housing. Um, I think I think people avoiding the commute. Um, commuting is not fun. But I think most people who can afford it would rather commute than be homeless. <laughs> um, I, I feel pretty confident about that. I don't know of any surveys, but... Um, it's, I think what you do find um, with the portion, um, and it, this varies a lot between counties, but um, usually somewhere between 10 and 50% of people, usually closer to 10 to 30% of people in any county are employed um, and homeless. Um, I think what you find is that they can't afford, they can't afford a commute and they can't afford to live in Tracy either. Um, you know, so it's because once, once you're talking about commuting that far, that's a huge expense, you know, wear on a car. And if what you're earning is, you know, if you work in, um, one of the people who works in like, a San Francisco hospital and you're making $90,000 a year, you can afford that commute and it sucks, but you can do it. Um, but if you're working at, you know, Chipotle, um, that's, I don't, mean to, I don't know what I'm singling out Chipotle, but you know, you're working in, in food service, you're working in um, housekeeping, you know, you're earning thirty, forty $40,000 a year, that just becomes sort of untenable. Um, so I, yeah. Uh, uh, Ms. Steger, we're almost out of time. We can make time for the last three people. That would be okay. great. And just efficiency I'll, is I'll the I'll try role. and be efficient okay. in my answers. 
So I'm going to squeeze two questions and a common theme, um, and that's around having to make the trade-off decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm from Berkeley, and I know one of the big challenges, like there's only limited funding to spend on homelessness. Mm -hmm. So there is some argument housing first versus spending it on families, like so spending it on people that actually like kind of potentially can get themselves Mm -hmm. out a little bit better versus just the people on the street. So that's how do you guys approach that, one. And then second, have you... It sounds like you've been successful in Marin with the creative approach to bringing housing first Mm -hmm. and creating those incentives for landlords. I think, again, limited funding. A lot of times the housing first gets funded. But what what I know in Berkeley, a lot of times we don't have the wraparound services. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a big failure and like kind of creates this perception issue around Section 8 vouchers Mm -hmm. and just like, why are you housing these homeless people in my like apartment? They Mm -hmm. don't even know how to take their garbage out. Right. So like how how have you done some of this trade off balances? Um, So I think the the prioritization question, I think, is it's a thing people reasonable people can disagree on. Um, I think for us. Our focus was really on chronic homelessness to start because basically because of that, um, we want to serve the people who are going to die on the streets. Um, and because I think at a certain point you get to the like, well, you know, family homelessness, family homelessness is so important, like addressing family homelessness because it becomes so generational. Um, being homeless as a child, like causes so many problems further on. Plus just like, homeless kids, man, like we really want to address that. Um, but for us, it was like, you also don't want somebody literally dying on the street. So it's, we're still trying to find a balance. I can't claim that we've got that solved. Um, and for being able to sort of, um, balance, balance resources, um, in terms of what we're spending on, um, for us, it's really been acknowledging from the very beginning that housing without services is not housing for the highest needs folks. Um, so we we have a um, whole person care pilot where we um, whole person care is a state program where we've basically created an assertive community treatment team um, to create some really high intensity case management. We've paired that with Section Eight vouchers. Um, and that seems to be working, but we're still, I mean, we still have people who are falling out of the housing we provide them. Um, we have a pretty high retention rate um, that we're really proud of, but, you know, it's, it's always addressing, you know, looking at what's happening and how can we improve it. So I had um, I had a question or sort of set of questions around the come in, the sort of a come in for you services probably have myth. probably time for one sure, question. For sure. okay. okay, well, broadly addressing the coming in for services myth, mm-hmm. um, First of all, the the 25% number actually, or so like 65 to 85% mm-hmm. of people um, were previously housed in the community mm-hmm. sort of implies that, okay, roughly 25% weren't previously housed in the community, which actually seems like a large number. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, second of all, to the extent that you have information about this, I'd be curious what the cohort looks like. Like those 25, those 25% call it, mm-hmm. um, are they harder to serve, easier to serve? Um, how does that cohort differ from the previously housed in the community cohort? That is an interesting question that I don't have the answer to. Um, I don't think we've ever run data specifically on like the people who were coming from out of the community. Um, I do just want to reemphasize that like coming from outside the county doesn't mean coming from like Texas. You know, it's somebody going from San Francisco to Marin or from Alameda to Contra Costa, like that's movement that I think most of us have done at some point. So, um, you know, it's, it's, this isn't like outsiders converging on our, our state. Um, but yeah, I don't, that's an interesting question that I don't know the answer to. Um, this question is um, as a result of the landlord incentive Mm -hmm. section that you were talking about as a way of helping the situation. Mm -hmm. Are there any landlord incentives available, or is anybody doing it, to prevent someone from losing an apartment that they already have and becoming homeless Mm -hmm. and then having to deal with that? So what kind of preventive things are in the works for for trying to prevent it? Mm -hmm. So I don't know... 
I don't know of anything specifically in, in sort of the same sense of like, hey, here's somebody with an affordable apartment. Can we give this landlord sorry, an extra $2,000 if they don't evict the person? I don't know of anything quite like that. I can tell you the, the things that we have are um, if the problem is somebody missed a rent payment or um, you know is struggling in that way, um, there are a variety of different funds that can do sort of prevention services to like, oh, you know, here's... Here's a thousand dollars, like to help you pay your rent this month. Like, let's there's you can get case management. Like, if it's this person just is has never been good at budgeting and really needs help, sort of looking at their budget and like figuring out, okay, how do I pay my rent every month with the money I have? Um, those service types of services are available. Um, in terms of just like preventing evictions, there's various tenant protection laws, um, which are sort of a little broader than, than homelessness, um, that um, a variety of um, things like rent control and things like um, mandatory mediation. So like you have to, you and your landlord have to talk with a mediator before they can evict you, um, just cause evictions, like they have to have an actual reason. It can't just be like, your lease is over, you know, beat it, um, things like that. Okay, I just want to note that uh, Ms. Sagerl has agreed to hang out here after the talk, so if your question didn't get answered, perhaps it will afterward. Mm -hmm. And so I want to thank you, Carrie Sager, and thank you, everybody. Thank you.